This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You are listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend. Christopher Butler. Now, before we get to highlight Christopher Butler real quick, I got to give a shout out to our new sponsor, which is the Fetzer Institute, who has recognized how the Church Politics Podcast promotes healthy democratic discourse and has decided to support us in that endeavor and to support us in doing it our way, which is always a must for the Ann campaign. I'm so excited about this sponsorship, about this partnership. We have some other big announcements about that partnership, which I really think is going to further the work of the Ann campaign. And uh, I'm excited about it, brother. But how has your week been so far? How's everything going for you, Reverend Butler? Oh, you know, things are uh, excellent. Things are outstanding. Busy as ever, but wouldn't have it any other way. The campaign trail has to be extremely busy, man. I know you got a lot going on. We've talked about it with your pastorate, with the campaign, with the kids and all the other things that come along, man. So uh, keep your head up. Keep keep pushing, man. It's, it's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. But, you know, it is uh, what we sign up for. I'm excited, man, right now. I'm excited about the campaign, excited about this partnership with Fetzer and the stuff we have coming up with and you know, you all don't know it, but Justin works very, very hard every day, um, just expanding his work literally all over the country and furthering this conversation. And I really think it's making uh, a difference. I, I love when I uh, when I'm out campaigning or in some church thing, uh, and people are like, "Yeah, I know the Ann campaign." Uh, you know, I heard Justin give a talk or something like that. So this stuff is happening, man. I'm I'm excited just about what God is doing. Likewise, man. And, and, and right back at you, man. This is all the good work. I know you're you you are don't consider it a burden to be doing all the things that you're doing. And I know that you do it for the kingdom. And I, I'm with you, man. It is always a surprise and, and a pleasure to hear how many people listen to the church politics podcast. And, you know, we haven't had a lot of resources to kind of spread the word. Most of it has been through word of mouth from the audience, from you guys. So we want to thank you also for just spreading the word about Church Politics Podcast, spreading the word about the Ann campaign. Please continue to support us, continue to spread the word in your churches and uh, at your universities, on the Hill, wherever you are. Let people know what we're trying to do so more people can learn about this framework. But speaking of a lot of stuff going on, we have a lot of good uh, conversations to have today. So as usual, uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think. Not like a Republican, 
not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And let me start off with some scripture. Colossians chapter one, verse 16 says, for in him, all things were created, things in the earth and on things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Chris, much has been written on the relationship between Christianity and science. Some Christians fear science and run from science as if it has or could ever discredit God or disprove our faith. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. It has not, it will not, and it cannot. So you can rest easy on that point, saints. But then you have other Christians who have given into what we may call scientism. They have an excessive belief in the power, knowledge, and techniques of science. They make science more than what it really is. They almost attribute omniscience and omnipotence to it. But no scientist or or, or institute of science is all-knowing or all-powerful. Science uses the laws, formulas, and tools that God has created. It doesn't create them. It observes God's design. It doesn't control it. We should be able to learn and wrestle with folks like Darwin and his theories without becoming his disciples. The great preacher, uh, Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, once said that some of us are looking more like Darwin than disciples. And I think in some cases he's right. And that's why here at the end campaign, we would reject both of those approaches to science. We embrace science. We believe that science not only can lead to more human flourishing, but also that science, that scientific discovery reveals, further reveals God's design. It reveals an orderly first cause that is outside of the natural world. There could be no science without an orderly world and discoverable laws. We learn something from the answer science provides and from the questions science can't answer. Theologian Langdon uh, Gilkey once said, the religious idea of a transcendent creator actually made possible rather than hindered the progress of the scientific understanding of natural order. There are scientific laws and formulas to discover because God's natural or general revelation. We discover what he's revealed through his grace. To believe those laws, equations, and innovations come from nothingness or just from chance is completely absurd. When we see just how intricate one strand of human DNA is, or even a plant cell, the idea of a creationless world that just happened out of nowhere is willful blindness or willful ignorance. Science is important. For this reason, we must promote ethics, the ethics in science, and also keep science away from the politicization and the taint of ideological tribalism. Which brings us to the story of the scientist named Dorian Abbott and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT. 
You see, Abbott is a geophysicist who studies climate change and whether or not planets in distant solar systems might harbor atmospheres conducive to life. And he's a a rising uh, name in the scientific community. Uh, MIT invited him to give a public lecture at the school within his area of expertise. But there was one problem, Chris. Abbott didn't have the right ideological views on an unrelated subject. So his, so his invitation was eventually revoked. You see, Abbott doesn't support aspects of affirmative action or certain diversity programs. He thinks they undermine merit, and he's been vocal about that opinion. Now, let me first say this to put it in the context for me. As a black man who's benefited from affirmative action programs directly, I disagree with Abbott on that point. And I know that there are black people who actually agree with him on that point. But let me say this. I think merit is important. But I also know that what we call merit in a country that's discriminated on the basis of race for hundreds of years can be deceptive. Affirmative action, in my opinion, can provide opportunity for those who otherwise would never have a chance to be exposed to certain fields. I personally didn't fully realize my potential until I was provided with an opportunity that some might have suggested I didn't deserve. Racial discrimination in all of its forms often purposefully keeps one's merit from blossoming. It's the bushel that hides that light. Now, with all that said, I still believe that Abbott is entitled to his opinion And when it comes to his insights on geophysics and climate change, I'm not particularly concerned about his opinion on affirmative action. Now, I probably wouldn't hire him to be the head of my diversity department or my diversity office. But that doesn't mean that all of his other thoughts should not be that that all of his other thoughts should be summarily dismissed. His political and ideological opinions should not prevent him from sharing his scientific insights, especially, especially in an academic setting where we're supposed to exchange popular and unpopular ideas and ideas of first impression. New ideas. MIT's decision to cancel the event in my decision, in my opinion, was wrong. It was childish. It's that tribal temper tantrum that I've talked so much about lately. If you don't agree with me on an issue that concerns my identity, then you're banished from every other conversation and all your work is worthless. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not how it works. That's not how democracy and a healthy discourse should work. Now, I'd like to debate Abbott about affirmative action and whatever the outcome of that debate would be, I would still defend his right to express his opinion and to be heard based on his scientific prowess. Chris, give me your uh, take on this this issue with Abbott at MIT. Yeah, I mean, I I think I should say uh, a little bit, as you did, just about the idea that I certainly... I mean, I haven't read all of uh, Dr. Abbott's uh, arguments or watched his videos, 
um, and that type of thing. But generally, somebody who is advancing the argument that, you know, affirmative action necessarily destroys any capacity for, you know, consideration of merit in academic programs, uh, I don't think that is accurate. I would would vigorously uh, disagree with that particular assumption. Uh, And and I also think that there are um, things that people can say and do that are disqualifying. And all of that said, I think that we are moving that line of what is disqualifying very rapidly. Uh, It seems like without much thoughtfulness uh, as as we move that line here, you don't have a person who is talking about, you know, sort of like some kind of intrinsic uh, lack of ability on the part of people of color. You don't have somebody who is advancing the cause of violence uh, against minorities and people of color. You don't have somebody here who's suggesting grabbing people and hauling them off campus if they've been admitted through some kind of uh, affirmative action program. You simply have a person who's like, hey, I don't think affirmative action is great uh, for the university. And I think we should figure out ways to, to get rid of that. This, in my view, is not particularly dangerous. This this article that I looked at, I think it's in, in, in the in the Times uh, that we looked at, but there's a, a quote in there um, from one of the folks who actually decided to cancel this MIT speech. And I think it gets to the heart of what's happening here. This Dr. Vanderhilst, uh, it says, speculated that Black students might well have been repelled uh, from Dr. Abbott's talk because of his views on affirmative action. And when I read that sentence, um, it it occurs to me that this is simply not truly reflective of the Black experience uh, in the United States. And it may even be dishonoring to the legacy of Black struggle to suggest that people who are descendants of uh, folks who were chattel property uh, in this country for hundreds of years. Uh, and within a couple of decades of, of freedom from just being chattel property had set up, uh, you know, grade schools and universities and began to struggle for the right to vote and just all the things that we have come through to suggest that the descendants of that kind of people could not sit and listen to a lecture of a dude who doesn't agree with affirmative action suggest a kind of, I'm going to be frank with it, a kind of weakness uh, that I don't think we find uh, in in the Black community. And so you're doing something to protect us from something that I'm not sure that we need protection from. Um, and so this this whole idea of of silencing debate around these issues in order to somehow protect black people or protect people of color um, may be misguided because it's, I mean, it's just not the, the legacy of struggle. I don't know who came up with this or, um, or where it really comes from, but it just doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to fit. I'd be happy uh, to sit around and debate anybody 
on issues of affirmative action uh, and whether that is actually helping uh, the cause of equity and improving outcomes, not only for people of color, but I think it's enriching the conversation uh, and the experience for the country as a whole. I'd be happy to have that conversation. But the fact that I wouldn't be able to sit and listen to somebody who disagrees with me on that point talk about geophysics um, suggests something about me that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. I think we're tracking on a few points. So so you make a good point. There are probably some extreme views, right, that you would say, hey, I don't want to pay this person. I don't want to really be associated with the person based on very, very extreme views. I mean, you know, whether it be someone maybe eugenics or something just questioning the human dignity of people in a way that was completely unacceptable. But but that is far beyond a conversation about policy and affirmative action. Uh, Would you agree there? A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, so, so I think that's the that, that's the first thing. Um, then you have people, even in I, I mean, you made such a good point, and we're, we're tracking on this in regard to the weakness of it all and the suggestion or implication that's made about black people. Um, as always, with a lot of you know, this is coming from more progressive side of the conversation. Somehow. You know, everything that's done is somehow to protect black people or some vulnerable group right now, even if the people in that group wouldn't say that this actually protects them from from anything that they need protection from. Let me say this, uh, because, you know, they say they're protecting minorities at the school from Abbott's dangerous opposing views. But 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 I have to I have to go here and say someone disagreeing with you on policy like this, even when it's an important issue that concerns your identity is no type of violence towards you, right? Someone promoting a policy that has real consequences and impacts and real impacts in relation to you is still not violence to you. Only actual violence is violence. Uh, It doesn't mean that they're right. It doesn't mean that the debate is insignificant. Uh, They could be dead wrong and they could still have something to say on another subject that can be profitable to you, especially on matters that are within their expertise. And it's not only that, Chris. We should want them to speak. Dr. Martin Luther King didn't seek protection from opposing views. He invited them because he knew the merits of the argument were in his favor. And if you look closely, you'll see the same thing with people like Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass. They didn't run for people because they disagreed. They wanted to have that conversation so that they could prove them wrong. That's what discourse is about. If I get somebody in a room who disagrees with me and I get an audience who is who's listening and who's working in good faith, that gives me an opportunity to disprove what that person is saying. And to your point, this whole eggshell, anemic posture and spirit is not of our heritage. It is not the legacy that the civil rights generation has handed down to us and that we have a responsibility to build on. That is not a foundation I'm going to build on. To act like I can't sit in a room with somebody who has a disagreement with me, even if it's on a serious issue. And the truth of the matter is for most African-Americans that I'm around, there's an expectation that there's going to be some disagreement. 
there's an expectation that people aren't necessarily going to see it the way that you see it. And under no terms with my parents or grandparents or anybody I ever was raised around, uh, give me an out to not have to have that conversation or somehow, you know, uh, um, uh, protect me from engaging in that conversation. The, the root of that is not in the black American experience, especially not the black Christian experience. The root of that is in secular progressivism. It's in academia. And it, and and really, I think it only hurts us if we continue to engage it and give it credence. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're so right on this. And, and I mean, that point that you make, I think is so important right now uh, in, in, in our country. I've, I've seen a few stories uh, like this, even locally in, in, in the Chicagoland area, uh, where this idea of violence, and again, I look at the legacy, Justin, that, that we're handed down. Um, I've got people like in my bloodline who experience actual violence, like somebody, you go try to vote or register to vote and folk beat you down, bloody your body. That's violence. Somebody saying, I don't believe in affirmative action. I think it's errant. I think it's wrong. I think it's missing uh, the big picture in a profound way. It's not violence, right? Like, and I love the way you said it. Only violence is violence, right? Like you can't expand that definition uh, just to fit you know, sort of a, a new way to do this. And, you know, the, the the main thing that concerns me, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an academic, uh, but I know that it's not long if these types of things get like a strong foothold uh, in the sciences, in universities, uh, that plays such a significant role in sort of creating culture, creating policy. Um, the folks who come out of these universities and these spaces uh, end up uh, as, you know, heads of industry, uh, making our media and so many uh, significant places. If this stuff is locked in and baked in there, it's not long before it starts to be locked in and baked in uh, all over culture, uh, which is the thing that that concerns me. Uh, if, if we start to teach this uh, in universities, it becomes part of formal education to interpret disagreement as violence. Um, if somebody takes a different view from you on a question of policy. And, and here's the other thing, Chris, we have to separate this kind of battle from a justice battle, right? Making sure that nobody can disagree with me or hurt or, or hurt my feelings is very different than fighting for justice. And one of the problems I have with some of these new iterations of the justice fight of what social justice is, is that it conflates Justice when it comes to human dignity, when it comes to my rights and what I deserve uh, as a citizen compared to I want you to make me feel good about myself or I want you to agree with me. Those two things are not the same. And when and when they become the same, you discredit the real battle because we're trying to get at something else that has nothing to do with with, with what we were originally talking about, especially when you talk about uh, civil rights. Anything else to add to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say real quickly off what you just said, Justin, it it, it certainly discredits that real battle. And I have a, a, a real concern as somebody who spent my whole life doing justice work and fighting those justice battles. When you get that distortion, it makes it more difficult to have the actual fight. Like, I, I think when when you silence a debate around affirmative action, it actually makes it more difficult to protect affirmative action. 
right? Because now anybody who's trying to protect affirmative action can easily be cast as just one of those folks who, you know, doesn't want to talk about it, you know, doesn't believe in merit, they're afraid to have the conversation, all those things. And so now it's more difficult to actually fight for justice because we're doing this other thing that I don't, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's certainly not justice work. It's almost a sign of privilege. I mean, you would never think Fannie Lou Hamer, MLK, those folks would be like, oh, I want to make sure everything, everybody agrees with me and everybody likes me and everybody makes me feel good. They didn't have that privilege. They didn't have that luxury to, to be worried about that. If you When you're really worried about the true injustice, that's what you have to focus on because you don't even think about the idea that everybody would have to agree. No, but they do have to abide by certain standards. Um, and those standards don't mean that you always have to agree or that they have to see things in the same way that you do. Uh, but this is going to be an o- ongoing conversation. I do want our audience to really think hard about what we're going for when we talk about justice, about what it means if we silence people, even when they disagree with us on important things. We'll be back in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Chris, let's stay on the subject of the politicization of science. Now, we were told by the experts that the COVID-19 lab leak theory was not only wrong, but completely baseless, dangerous, and even racist. (laughs) That's right. A New York Times science and global health reporter at one time said that the roots of the lab leak theory were racist. Now, we know that many times, again, that's meant to just completely end the conversation and and understanding that there is real serious racism in this country. I, I take exception to it being used in this kind of context. Now, mind you, This is the theory. The lab leak theory is the theory that COVID-19 leaked out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China rather than having its origin in the Chinese wet markets. Now, that doesn't sound like an impossibility, nor does it sound like some outlandish or racist theory. But people were actually getting their posts removed from Facebook for for voicing what might be the most likely explanation for the pandemic. People, we have a problem. That, that, that's problematic. Now, I think we have to ask, Chris, why was there such a visceral reaction from experts, quote unquote, from the media and from social media platforms about the lab leak theory? I think we have to ask that question. And if I had to guess, I would say that it's because President Donald Trump happened to crudely endorse that theory. So once he endorsed that theory in the way that he does, of course, the media's immediate reaction wasn't primarily to get to the truth of the matter. 
but it was to ensure that Trump looked as wrong and as stupid as possible. They were so committed to making sure that Trump was wrong that they blinded themselves to the possibility that he might have stumbled upon something that needed further investigation. Not only is this the 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 politicization of politics, but this is what we talk about all the time. This is opposition centered politics. This is malpractice on behalf of the media and in the scientific and parts of the scientific community. Again, this is part of how COVID became politicized and became a part of the culture war face off. Now, public relations wise, the primary beneficiary of this backlash has been Dr. Anthony Fauci, who immediately became the anti-Trump superhero as he assured us that the lab leak theory was nonsense. Now, I want to be fair, and we've talked about this whole conversation about how he came out way too early and, and threw out this lab leak theory. But I do want to be fair. In a time of complete disarray, in a time where people were mourning and confused and trying to figure out what was going on with this pandemic, Fauci was much more mature and reassure, and reassuring than Trump was. And I want to be very clear that Trump played a huge role in the politicization of COVID as well. Uh, he is not off the hook for for things that he said that weren't true, for his overall tone, for his overall uh, his overall posture. Not off the hook for that. This is not to absolve him in any way. But it does appear and we've talked about the, the earlier part before, but it does appear that Dr. Fauci has been caught in a very serious lie. He repeatedly told Congress and the American people that the National Institute of Health, where he's the director, did not fund gain-of-function research. Now, that's a risky type of research that actually strengthens viruses like COVID in order to find ways to combat them in, the, in future outbreaks. And according to the lab leak theory, it was gain-of-function research that led to COVID leaking out of the Wuhan, Wuhan Institute of Virology and killing millions. That point has not been proven, but as we've talked about in an earlier episode, it's way too early to throw it out. And it's looking like it might be more likely than the, the wet market uh, uh, related theory. Well, Fauci, again, over and over, assured us that this research wouldn't be wasn't funded by uh, by the institute that he was running. But the National Institute of Health has now admitted that it did indeed fund gain-of-function research. But now they're saying, and, and this happened because there was some, some open records requests and all that stuff, and so they had to come out with more information, and now they kind of had to say, well, yeah, that, 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 that research was being funded. But they're now saying that the group who they gave the grant to didn't notify them about that particular research. The other group has pulled out receipts, though, so they're saying, oh, oh, really, you're going to say we're lying or you're going to say we didn't tell you. Here's the receipts showing that NIH was aware of what's going on. So while Fauci's still giving very broad denials about this, it appears that he probably knew about the research or certainly should have known. And this is what we say in the law. 
You can't, you know, when you should have known something, it's not a defense that you didn't know. Right. If you've been negligent in what you've uh, looked into, you can't say, well, I didn't know. Well, you should have known. And he it looks like based on the reports that are coming out of, I think, Vanity Fair and others, he should have known and he should have made sure that there was proper oversight. But many would say that that research was being done in Wuhan, in China, because they didn't have to have the same standards, that it was going to be allowed there. Now, let me be clear. What I am not saying, and this is only me talking, Justin Gibney, what I am not saying is that Fauci or anyone purposefully started the pandemic. That's not what I'm saying. But there's reason to believe that they okayed very risky research that didn't have the proper oversight and then had uh, incentive to lie about whether that uh, was that research was being funded or not. Now, it got so bad during one point of this because Fauci became this anti-Trump hero. It got so bad with some of the people I know, some of the people maybe that listen to this uh, podcast. It got so bad that to question or disagree with Fauci was to disagree with science. Unfortunately, that's not how science or a democratic discourse should work. Just, you know, screaming, just follow the science. We heard this all over. Just follow the science. It doesn't it's not quite that simple. That's not really just how it works, because the science and scientists should always be subject to questions and critiques. There are people who disagree. There's a chances that they can be wrong. So so yelling, just follow the science because a few science or most of the scientists say something. That's not just that's not really how it goes. Now, we've on this uh, podcast said over and over, we think you should take the vaccine. This is not about that. But we do need to understand that scientists are not philosopher kings that just render orders that we blindly follow. If you're going to scream, just follow the science and you're going to get mad at people who have these conspiracy theories, then you should also be fighting against the politicization of science. We're not here to say this is all a big conspiracy and, and people are trying to. That's not what we're saying. But people are going to have questions. And if we want our science to be as dependable as possible. Then we have to be willing to defend the ethics and make sure that politics and tribal and tribalism stay out of the conversation. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is uh, such an important uh, conversation to have. And I think uh I will uh, urge and ask uh, our, our listeners to do something that's becoming increasingly difficult uh, in our sort of modern framework, and that is take this whole conversation out of the context of this sort of like culture war piece, right? Like for me, the exploration and getting to the bottom of the lab leak theory or all of the uh, sort of available theories on where COVID-19 came from. It's not about vindicating Donald Trump. Uh, it's not about, you know, we're, we're not here to like come at Dr. Fauci in some way to prove, you know, that, you know, the, the that he or liberal establishment or anything like this is actually a conversation about the health and safety of literally the entire world, 
Uh, and it is so big of a conversation that we cannot lose that conversation uh, to this sort of like desire for, you know, for this culture war battle, this endless thing of are we vindicating Trump or are we proving that he's wrong? Are we, you know, upholding Fauci or Biden or any of this? This is not about any of this. This is actually about where did this uh, highly contagious, uh, badly infectious virus come from? Because that answering that question is, I think, pretty important to making plans for avoiding something like this happening again in the future. So it's a, it's a very important question. It shouldn't be about vindicating Trump or uh, or blast anybody. That's, that's not the context for this. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're using this, this phrase of the politicization of science. Um, and there is this idea that we shouldn't let science come in um, or politics come into the scientific spaces uh, and corrupt those spaces. Uh, and I've been saying sort of since the early parts of the COVID uh, outbreak uh, that it also works the other way. Like you can't let science come in and start playing a, a an outsized role in our politics. Uh, when, when I first started hearing the phrase, just follow the science or, you know, uh, uh, you know, our governor here in Illinois was, uh, very, you know, he said that in almost every press conference, we're just going to listen to the scientists. And when I first heard this, and this was before lab leak or any of that stuff was really rolling, my thought when I hear that is that sounds like an abdication of executive duty, right? Because we certainly want the scientists at the table, uh, and we certainly want to hear from the scientists. But there are other factors, there are other thoughts, there are other people with other views, other disciplines, other area of expertise, other um, sort of points of emphasis on how things are impacting people and government and life. And I, my thought, at least coming into this whole COVID experience, was that the role of government, especially executive leadership, was not to just listen to one set of experts and do what they say but to actually gather input from a whole host of people, stakeholders, experts, and all those types of folks, synthesize that uh, and make a decision. That to me is really what the, that's the essence of our politics is deciding, uh, having some kind of structures and frameworks uh, to decide how we're going to move, how we're going to distribute resources um, and all those types of things. And I never thought that it was a good idea to just say that those decisions could be made singularly based on the opinions of scientists. Even if those scientists were not involved in research that may have been uh, uh, at the root of how the, the pandemic came to be, even if, that, even if that wasn't even a consideration, you just don't give one specific group of people carte blanche to make decisions for the government. That's not our democracy. That's not, that's not a democracy. We don't have a, 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 I don't know, a scientocracy, right? We, we have these elected leaders who, who have to aggregate all that stuff, synthesize it and make a decision. What I do think is that this proves why we have the system that way, because people are people, even people who are scientists, and I'm sure very devoted to science and discovery. Uh, when you find yourself in a pickle, 
you know, there's so much incentive, uh, so much, you know, this is a Christian uh, podcast. And so we understand even just like that internal temptation when when fear and shame and what about my future? What about my career? Uh, when all that stuff is working with you, you may not be as clear headed as you need to be in terms of what you're going to say and what you're going to do. And if people start platforming you in this way where you can't be questioned, why not lean into that? And so all of those human factors uh, and the frailty of, of, of humanness is, is why it is a good idea not to give one person or even one sector all of the decision-making power uh, in our politics. Because there's, there's too much opportunity. I, I think, Justin, if it weren't this, it could have been something else because you just can't hand over the whole thing uh, to, to one group, even if you're talking about scientists and public health officials in the middle of a public health crisis. You can't just give one community of folks all of the decision-making power. That's never safe to do. Um, and so I, I think that that's at the root of this. And we got to find a way to start to back out of this culture war approach to it, because at the heart of the matter, now we do have a thing of, you know, dealing with if you have a community of folks who have been lying to the public, if that is, is, is really true, there's a whole host of things that need to be dealt with there. But we still haven't gotten to the bottom of where the pandemic came from, which I think is a significant question for yeah. literally the whole world. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, man, I was so disappointed. I was watching the Sunday shows and the Van, Van, Vanity Fair article that put all this out there was out. It, everything was out. There. This, this information was out there. Fauci was talking about other stuff. And he got one question at the end that was basically like, hey, you didn't do any of this stuff, did you? He's like, no, nah, man, I'm good. It's like, OK, let's go to the next subject. I'm like, are y'all serious? You don't bring up the Vanity Fair article. You don't bring up what the NHI, uh, NIH has already come out and said. And you just give it a pass. Again, that's that's malpractice. Science can't do its job if it's following behind political or tribal narratives. If people aren't being questioned because of political and tribal narratives, this is this is important stuff. And and you make a great point. It's not really about Fauci. It's not really about Trump. It's about getting to the bottom of something that kid that's killed millions of people. And we're so stuck on our our politics. We're so stuck on partisanship and tribalism that we will dismiss what can get us to the truth to maintain a narrative, to maintain the narrative. The other side is stupid. And that's really what let's be honest. Follow the science. Yes, we should listen to science as a serious factor in, in kind of our decisions. But follow the science was a way of saying don't be stupid like Trump and the people that like Trump. That that's really that's really what it meant. It was a very flat way of making an accusation and showing, hey, if your identity is with us, then you stay with us. But as you said, the truth of the matter is, is that's just science is one important part of decision making, especially for executives and also people in families that has a lot of other factors in it. It became a cop out and people were actually making bad decisions, whether it be in, in regard to education whether it be in regard to what was going on with restaurants, they weren't look. The people who were saying just look at the science, in many cases, weren't looking at the science, <laughs> right? They were looking at the narrative that served what they wanted to, that served them and allowed them to be on the opposite side of Trump. And we had so many decisions made by Republicans, by progressives that were not about the science or the other factors that could have got us closer to a better recovery. It was about the narratives. It was about being being up one 
when it comes to the culture war. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's it's also important to say, if you think we're just talking theoretical stuff here, uh, United States government is right now making plans to redouble its efforts to fund gain-of-function research, right? Um, and if indeed gain-of-function research is at the at the core of where COVID-19 came from, how many of us think that's really a good idea? But right now, we actually cannot even ask the question, right? Like, if it is a good idea to continue to fund and even increase funding toward a, an approach to research, which again, I, I, I want to put it forward because I am not a virologist, um, but my basic understanding of gain-of-function research is that you take a naturally occurring virus, you make it more transmissible to humans in order to create solutions, vaccines, cures, whatever, for that you know, sort of super virus that you created. But if it is the reality, which according to the reading that I have done, um, viruses leaking from labs is not an uncommon thing, right? So if it is not uncommon for viruses to leak from labs, do we think it's a good idea to create super viruses in those labs um, and to be directing more and even increased funding toward that research could potentially be very dangerous. And I think we should be answering that question if it is actually really, really dangerous so that we could have a good uh, set of information to make the decision about if we should continue to do it. Um, and the fact that, you know, it's, it's what we've been talking about today. The, the, the problem is that you can't even have the conversation. Right. Like you can't ask the question. I'm sure somebody's going to be like upset that we're even having the conversation here today, Justin, because, you know, and, I, and I'm worried talk about it. And I'm worried because the press, the main, you know, mainstream media got this so wrong that they're not going to report on it because that would be a huge admission that that would be it. But but see what I, I don't think that they realize is somebody's going to be talking about it. And if you're if you can't come and say, hey, this is what's really going on, then don't come to me here. Here's, let me just say this. Anybody who who really believes and wants to go along with it, just go along with the science stuff. That's great. We value science. We hope that you value science, too. But don't come at people who have these conspiracy theories if you're not willing to step up and make sure that you don't justify those theories by doing stuff like this. By allowing cover-ups, by having somebody who needs to answer some tough questions on your show, and you don't ask them the tough questions. That's what breeds conspiracy theory. That's why people don't trust our institutions and don't trust the media and so on. Uh, we've got to deal with that in a real way. We'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It's the Right Reverend Christopher Butler and me, Justin Gibney. All right, Chris, we talked about some pretty heavy stuff, and I want to talk about a more feel-good story that came out, I think, this weekend, but uh, at Southwood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, they had experienced quite a bit of violence where the kids there were just fighting for a whole week. They could not stop these altercations that were happening at the school, again, almost every day. They were having violence. There's some video footage of just several kids just fighting in the hallways, fighting in the common areas at the school. After seeing this, though, here's the good part. After seeing this, a group of about 40 dads in the area decided to show up at the school in shifts to be in the school, to be in the hallways, to greet the kids, to prevent this violence. Not only did the violence and the fighting stop, Class attendance went up and several students admitted feel, to feeling more secure. And it was interesting, Chris, when they did, when this group of, of, of heroes, in my opinion, when this group of heroes uh, got interviewed uh, by one of the stations, they were asked what their es- expertise was. And, their, and their, their, their answer was, we're fathers, right? That's our expertise. We don't have necessarily any degrees that go along with this, but we're experienced fathers. And what I loved about what they were doing as they kind of followed them through the halls was this wasn't all about intimidation. This was about relating to the kids. This was about joking with the kids. This was about their mere presence and caring about what went on. Now, some of the kids say, hey, you know how dads are. They can just give you a look and you go do what you need to do. Now, we know that isn't always the case, but I do think this points out the important role, Chris, that fathers and and men in general have in kids' life. I said on on, um, on Twitter that this is God's design on display. Men and fathers play a special role in the lives of children, and we only hurt ourselves as a society when we don't realize that. Now, we know that mothers are very important to the formation and health of kids. There's no doubt about that. This isn't coming down on anybody who's a wonderful uh, single mom, and there's so many of them out there. All this is saying that fathers play an important role, too, and that we can't socially construct our way out of that truth. Um, I think this also demonstrates, Chris, the power of community and how community and those in relationship can solve problems that the government by itself is just not going to solve. Maybe this gets solved by a government program, but only if these guys agree to come in here and agree to be a part of it. The community has a very serious role to play as well. And so we don't always want to push that over to to some government program, although, you know, we support smart government. We support programs that could help because there may be some. But there's always a place for community that I think sometimes government can't reach. And even as people who uh, have benefited from some government programs and have seen throughout history how those can be helpful, 
there's a certain place for community, a certain place for fathers that we really can't replace. Any uh, any any comments on this, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I, I think it is, uh, you know, the kind of thing that you see working in pockets all over the place, both when it comes to uh, confronting violence and creating um, uh, better results in school. I actually loved uh, the story because it, it, it actually brought both of those worlds together, which are two uh, spaces that I've spent significant time uh, working in and that are are really important to me. And, you know, you really do create an impact uh, just by getting, you know, community engaged in this. Um, I personally think that government could actually do a lot to to further the uh, these types of results just by supporting this type of work. Um, you know, a, a lesson that I've learned, um, you know, working with you, Justin, and campaign um, is is something that I've believed in for a long time. But really, when when you actually focused us in the end campaign on making sure that whoever wants to fund us, we want funding, uh, but we never want funding to try to change the essence of how we do stuff. Uh, we want people to uh, to support us doing it the way that we know to do it. Um, and I, I think that there's a, a way for government to come alongside uh, dads and moms and faith-based organizations, community-based organizations, um, and help enhance this work. Because uh, anytime that I've ever seen it or participated in it so far, you know, it's philanthropic dollars, uh, it's community-based dollars, and that is more difficult to scale. And so is one of the things that I, I encourage um you know, I used to say all the time in, in, in schools and education spaces that the highest impact, lowest cost intervention that we could possibly have in schools uh, is parent engagement. Um, and so you see this here. And I'm, I'm so glad that these dads are doing this in Louisiana. I hope uh, that uh, philanthropic dollars and um, if, if there are uh, folks who are in government somewhere, uh, if you're listening, I think everybody should be coming alongside these dads and other dads who are trying to do uh, similar things and just community folks in general and strengthening the hand of people to do this type of work. Because I think this is where vast majority of solutions lie. Yeah. And I think you make a very good point, which isn't counter to what I was saying, that uh, the government can certainly support this, can incentivize things like this and can, you know, create an environment where this can be more robu- robust. So I, I don't disagree with that at all. But I guess what I'm saying is this isn't bureaucracy coming in and creating a program that the government runs and the government decides exactly how it goes. Uh, this isn't that fixing the problem. This is the community coming in and hopefully the government uh, following kind of behind that to support and incentivize and encourage what they're already doing as a community. And I just, I just, even as people, you know, some of the progressives that listen to this, uh, uh, this podcast, I I just want to keep in mind while there are, there's a role for the government to play. We still don't want to forget that family and community play a role that really can't be replaced. Right. And it can't be be drawn up into the bureaucracy because I've seen an attempt at Justin where, you know, government tries to get in and support something like this, but you end up changing it too much because now you're bringing all that, the bureaucracy and, and, and I mean, these dads don't want to be doing like endless paperwork, you know, to get a few thousand dollars of, of support. Um, so, but if we can find ways to do it where 
you can support it. And I, and I, and I, I know this is supposed to be the feel goods uh, uh, section, but I will say too many times government gets involved and people don't even want government to get involved because when government gets involved, it actually kills that community based vibe uh, because it does quickly become over overly programmed and overly bureaucratic. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if because this support, is a public, this is a public school, right? So we can't completely say that there, there's, there's going to be no interaction there, but to your point to take it over or to turn it into something that's bureaucratic can really kill these type of efforts. The last thing I would say, Chris, is that I do think this says something to our very hyper egalitarian, um, society right now where, it's very good that we're going after equality. It's very good that we're having these conversations about equity. But unfortunately, it seems too often we have these conversations about equality and equity without understanding difference. And so and so because we're having those conversations, we can't understand the difference that a father might make in this environment. The difference that a mother might make or a woman might make in a different environment, that there are different uh, characteristics and and other things that they may bring into a conversation that may help a kid. This isn't to say that fathers can solve every problem that's always around, but when you're talking about violence, when you're talking about situations like you have in Shreveport, this sounds like a great solution that I hope I'm with you expands and that we can grow on. I'll, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I, I think that's so important that uh, in in that pursuit of equality, I think it's so important to understand that it's, it's not about destroying uh, masculinity and femininity or fusing them in some way. Uh, I think the high goal of the pursuit of equality is to understand that both are equally important. And I do think we have had just too many experiences down through time, like virtually all of it, where the stuff of masculinity has been put forward as more important to the family, to the community, to the church, uh, than what, uh, you know, femininity and, and womanhood provides. And that is untrue um, because it, men are not more important in any way. Uh, but the equality pursuit, in my view, I mean, it's just me, little old me, I, I, I'm just offering mine. But I think the high goal of equality would be to actually see those differences, appreciate them, and understand that both are equally important to family, community, church, and all aspects of life. Yeah, when it comes to gender, you can have equality without erasing the difference and the distinctions. And I think for Christians, that's very important to articulate because I'm seeing a lot of people that are rightfully hitting on the equality and equ equity point, but they're shying away from the difference and distinction point. And I, and I think that's a mistake. Well, Chris, an, another great episode. We thank you all for joining us as usual. Hey, if you want to support us, you can go to the org and support us there. Or if you want to sp support church politics specifically, you can go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics. We're excited about all the stuff that's going on, man. We are really trying to make an impact and we, we're thankful that you all are so willing to spread the word about what's going on. Please keep spreading the word about the Church Politics Podcast so more people can enjoy what we're trying to do. And as usual, and Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing 
suffering in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. We'll holler at you. Oh, Lord. I said kingdom. kingdom.